This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 556 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Cara Smith. Nakara has an incredible story from working in intelligence for the Air Force to tracking terrorists for multiple letter agencies and now working for the nonprofit Deliver Fund Hunting Human Traffickers. So we discuss a host of topics from creating terrorist watch lists, the human trafficking epidemic, how a first responder might be able to identify a trafficking victim and so much more. Before we get to this very powerful conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 550 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Kara Smith. Enjoy. So Kara, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you? 
I am in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I reside in the land of enchantment. <laughs> now, I've had obviously several guests from that area. Um, you know, Nick, who was one of the co-founders, and Greg Jackson, an amazing MMA coach that works with you guys. And and then I know she's not from there, but obviously to me, Naj as well. So. Um, amazing you know stories and it's going to be interesting to kind of hear your perspective alongside theirs but i'd love to start at the very beginning chronologically so tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic what your parents did and how many siblings all right i was born in fresno california uh, the reason why i was born in fresno was because it was the closest place to where my parents actually um I guess, gestated me up in the Sierra Nevada <laughs> mountain range. Um, so I spent a um, long, like the majority of my childhood till I was seven years old in the middle of nowhere in the mountains um, with my mom and my dad. And then I have an older brother who is six years older than me. And so um, in the wintertime up there, it was skiing and snowboarding. My dad was the operations manager. Um, on the ski area that we lived on. And then in the summer, it was hiking and lakes and um, dodging the bears. <laughs> they were they were pretty much everywhere. And so um, I started off my life just being very secluded from other kids. You know, my, my preschool and kindergarten and first grade, I had to be driven an hour and 15 minutes to my school oh, each wow. way to go to school. My mom had to go to a school board meeting to get uh, permission to put a car seat in the school bus so that I could be taken down to school and whatnot. So, uh, you know, that's where it started. And then I uh, lived in the Clovis, California area for a few years and then moved down to Southern California, um, where I spent the majority of my childhood. Um, but my parents, um, they waited until their mid-30s to have me. And so they're a little bit older and, uh, unlike today, you know, people are having their kids that are older back then. Um, there wasn't really much to like keep you on level with your kids. I feel like I've always had a huge generational gap with my parents. Um, but they are still, um, happily married and together today. They live about 10 minutes away from me. And, um, although they raised me to be fiercely independent and do everything on my own, I don't know what I would do without them today. Uh, my brother, um, six years older than me, always has done his own thing. He uh, retired from the Air Force a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, we're, we're not very close. Um, he, he does what he does and I do what I do. But um, I think I've just found like my siblings that aren't from my parents throughout life to be my really close friends. And I'm very loyal to a couple of people that I would consider family. Beautiful. Now, with um, that early childhood growing up around the mountains and, you know, having the very outdoors, active um, lifestyle and that being the norm for you, um, how have you seen that carry over in your personal – fitness is even the wrong word – personal activity and health level? Um, because, I mean, that's something that I, I was very lucky. I grew up on a farm and I feel like that really helped me today. But then it breaks my heart seeing some of the ill health of some of our fellow Americans. Oh, I mean, I, it influenced me so deeply. Like I directly connect my life to being outside, being constantly active. I've always wanted to try new things. I was very athletic. 
Um, I mean, my mom had me on skis before I could um, hardly stand up on my own, right? So she, I've been skiing since I could stand up, um, you know, wakeboarding, jet skiing in the summer, um, uh, mountain biking, all of that. Like I've always had to constantly stay active. If I am not active, I'm just not happy. I have to get outside. I have to smell the fresh air. Um, and I just, you know, I constantly try to push myself. Um, and I don't think there's any place I'm happier than in the middle of nowhere with no internet. <laughs> um, and possibly being in a precarious situation on the side of the mountain. <laughs> uh, and being active will always be a part of my life. I will con I will continuously be active until my body no longer allows it to happen. Um, I don't even let that stop me though. Like let's slap a knee brace on and keep on going. Uh, because if not, I just, I just start to degrade. I have to be outside. Yeah, no, it's, it's incredible. I actually took my little boy, my, I forget what, the, I think it's my dad's 70th. Um, we went to France, my family were all in Europe. So we met, he actually rented a, a cabin on a ski resort and we met and he was four and he went through this French ski school. So obviously 90% of the French, the, the instructions were in French. First day, you know, he's shuffling along. The last day, he's slaloming through the little poles and then catching the button lift and going back on at four. And it's, it's amazing. But I mean, he's, that's stuck with him as well. And I think that's what's so heartbreaking when you ski, when you wakeboard, when you're mountain biking and you're out in nature and you have sunshine, you know, and you, you get bumps and bruises and it's, it's so much fun. It's so rewarding. And then you kind of take the, the inner city gym grind. Um, and I see why people are discouraged by it. And I, and I wish there was a way to kind of inject your childhood and my childhood into people that weren't as fortunate to grow up in there to, to show them, like, if you take care of your body and you eat well and you get outside, there is, I agree with you completely, there's nothing better than standing on the top of a mountain with a piece of wood strapped to your feet. And, you know, only gravity is going to take you from the top to the bottom. Yeah, I love it. And, you know, I, I do the gym thing every day too. Um, because I need that chemical reward for my brain. If I don't have that chemical reward for my brain in the morning, my day just doesn't, doesn't go right. Um, and I also know that I'm just a happier person when I do, you know, get 30 to 40 minutes in every single day. And I take pride in myself. I take pride in my health. And I think that's something that we're all missing is just taking pride in yourself and only doing it for yourself. And so like with the gym grind, so many people, it's just, it's, they're doing it for other people to look in at themselves, but do they ever just sit down and think and go, this is how I feel. And I'm feeling good about myself doing it and, you know, giving themselves that reward. I think that's where we find a lot of the problems because in society, everybody looks uh, being fit and being healthy as being a reflection to how other people treat you. And that just needs to stop. You have to focus on yourself. Yeah. Well, I say that with kindness as well. I mean, you know, sadly, there are a lot of people now that set up a situation so they can film themselves being kind, which, you know, is kind of a paradox in itself. But I've always said, and we're going to get obviously into this a lot, you know, people that do horrible things, whether they're human traffickers or whether they're, you know, unethical business people, it's the same thing. Um, it, it, you're not getting any reward apart from the tangible, you know, the purchasable, you know, things that are around your home or that you drive or on your fingers or whatever it is, but a simple act of kindness that no one else sees. 
the body literally is wired to reward you intrinsically when you are kind, when you are compassionate. So that's what kind of baffles me that it's a hard sell to be a nice person sometimes when you are literally wired to be a nice person. I think that, okay, so this is contradicting this thought of like not filming it and everything, but um, something I suggest people do because it really does make you feel good is when you go through the the coffee drive through or wherever it may be, pay for the order behind you. Like it's my most favorite thing to do. I'm all like, hey, hey, get, get the one behind me. And I'm like, and I just, you know, I drive away happy because like, what is it? 10 extra dollars. And you know that whoever may be in that car behind you, because you never get to see them. You just keep going. But you know that, you know, you did make somebody's day better. And the reason why I started doing that, because it happened to me, which I thought was the coolest thing ever. And it had never been done. And I was so happy. I'm like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing this. So every single time <laughs> I go through Starbucks or wherever the coffee place may be, I, I pay for the person behind me. And what's an extra an extra few bucks that you're probably going to spend later on in the week anyway on yourself. So go ahead and cut your next coffee run short and pay for the person behind you. It's awesome. I love doing it. Well, so had, easy to do too. Yeah, exactly. And I had that same experience. So I was coming off a really brutal shift. I can still see it in my head. And was you know, I always lived about an hour and a half from where I work. So it's a long drive, especially after 24 hours without sleep. And so I was in this drive through and just, you know, waiting to get my little caffeine kick and it was exactly that. Oh, you know, the, the car in front of you paid for you. And so I ended up saying, all right, well, that's amazing. So here's my money, pay for the person behind me. And what's funny is I've heard stories where that has actually gone on for like an hour, two hours of every single car paying for the person. So again, you're that first person that initiates that act of kindness. Yeah. It leads other people to do the same thing. Yeah, no, and that those are always those cool stories that like your Starbucks has been paid for for the person in front of you or whatever, and you hear them sometimes on social media or whatever the news is, and it's like, yeah, that went on for ten or eleven hours or something like that, and it's like, it's pretty cool. I really, I really like hearing those. Just the the little things. I I <laughs> I was driving around with my kids this week. We were um, looking at holiday lights, looking at Christmas lights. And um, I kind of live in the middle of nowhere and dirt roads, but we still get our mail delivered to our homes individually. And um, there was a, um, there's a postman and he was off in a ditch. And I drove, I was driving by pitch dark where we were because it was like empty lots where we were. I'm like, are you okay? Do you need help? And he's like, yeah. And I, I have a winch on the front of my Jeep, which I, coincidentally never actually had to recover anybody so I was like yeah my first recovery and I I pulled the, the mailman out of the ditch and I was like well that was simple and um I think the best part was my kids thought they were superheroes for doing it they thought it was the coolest thing ever just the little act of you know hooking up the winch and pulling the the uh, mail vehicle out and so like being that kind of example to your kids too yes it was 25 degrees out it's freezing it was time to go to bed but what 15 minutes to pull a guy out of the ditch where you could have just driven by which most people will do but when you see somebody else who needs help as small as it may be and if you're able to do it that's how you make the world a better place 
Absolutely. A hundred percent. Now you touched on the gym membership, excuse me, the gym attendance. I, I just got back from jujitsu myself and I'll be doing the gym later today. Um, but as your kind of positive outlet, um, I heard, I think it was with Andy Stumpf, you discussed, you know, some of your early life. A big question that I've started asking a lot of people, um, because I've discovered that it was in so many people's lives, especially people that have found themselves on a path to protecting, to healing, to, you know, to being the, you know, the, the positive light in someone's life is, is childhood trauma. And, and from what I got from your conversation, it sounded like bullying was a, a big part of your, your earlier life. So when you look back now, what was that childhood like? And, and was that the change from when you were out on your own to moving to Clovis? Man, Andy like totally cornered me and brought that out. And I had never even realized what I do now was related back to being bullied as a kid. Um, gosh, so I, that, you know, I, I was very, very isolated um, in my younger like age. And then when I got to Clovis, the schools were bigger. There was so much more diversity um, and that's when bullying took place and there were so much pressures and things and it started just a little bit, but in elementary school, it wasn't nearly as bad as it became when we got, like, when you get older, right? Um, and I, I was bullied and it did shape who I was um, and what I do now um, and probably hardwired my brain um, through certain kinds of traumas to react in certain ways. Uh, whether that's good or bad, I don't know because <laughs> I'm surviving. But um, I look, I look back at it, and I don't think I would have changed anything um, due to the outcome of where I am now. I think, although we we're talking about bullying and how bad it is, and um, how some children shouldn't go through certain things, especially when they're supposed to be in safe environments at school, I think it's also a small part of life of learning how to per persevere and uh, push through difficult avenues that you come across and solving the problems that you come across. Uh, if everything is constantly handed to you and you're constantly, you know, given those um, participation trophies and shielded constantly from adults, from what you have to come across as a child, then What's going to happen to you when you're an adult when you face a tough situation? It's a problem. You need to know how to work through those problems and, you know, use what you're learning and how you've learned as a kid to carry on as an adult. I think that we're being a little too sensitive with our kids these days, whether it has to do with talking about the realities and truths that they're going to face. Um, or also having them work out their own problems and situations um, instead of hiding from them and just automatically shutting them down. Yeah. Well, an interesting perspective, though, is also the bully. Like, I honestly, like, I went to a, a school, a senior school in probably the the less affluent area of the city that, that I attended. And I actually bust about 30 minutes to get to that town or that city. Um, but, I mean, I can remember five fights maybe in the five years that I was there, um, you know, of which I only got into one of them. Um, and so when you see on, especially American films, like the, you know, the bully culture and slamming up against lockers and flushing heads and toilets and all this kind of thing, like I didn't see that in a lot of 
you know, the, the school time when I come up. So to me, you know, yes, we have to get our kids to, to, you know, we have to take the, the bubble wrap of our children. Absolutely. But we also have to figure out why some of these little assholes become little assholes in the first place. Because I don't, I, it, it kind of blows my mind that a group of kids and we see videos of them would pick on a kid with Down syndrome or a kid because he's poor and hasn't got the right sneakers or whatever it is. And I don't, like, that's another part of the conversation. You know, yes, we have to toughen up our kids, but maybe we can also stop it being such a shit show in the first place with some of our children in the schools. Yeah, I agree. And I think it falls back a lot on the parents um, and how they're raising their children and what kind of influence that they have on their kids and what their kids see within, you know, the home itself. Like, like all it takes is a father or mother to constantly degrade the self-esteem of a child for them to react in a negative manner against other children. Um, so, I mean, if you have... Like it, we need to teach your kids not to be bullies more than anything, um, including to handle them. But it, it, it is a major problem. Um, but it's just like it's it's so complex. And I think it requires, of you know, some degrees with like Ph.D. and other things behind them <laughs> to understand how that all works. I'm sure there's like whole courses in college you could go through from a psychological standpoint, I understand how that works. But then everybody, um, even without the education and training on childhood development, feels like they have a say in it because we all have kids, right? Um, so it, it gets interesting. I'm, I'm so glad that, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm so glad I'm not a kid though in today's age because of the, di the digital aspect that's laid on top of it. Uh, like I saw the very beginnings of cyberbullying when I was in high school. Um, and, you know, I was cyberbullied in high school by an email going out and lies in the emails going out. Like there was a really good tech savvy kid, which I love him. And we talk till this day and he's a great person now. And he engineers video games in Silicon Valley and stuff. Um, and if he listens, he'll know. But he wrote a newsletter where he was you know, it was a gossip column for high school and he distributed it out over email. And he said some pretty mean things about me that were really hurtful. Probably not true. I don't even remember what they were now. But I couldn't imagine if we had social media back then. Like, I couldn't even imagine how hard it would have been. And so in today's world, and teaching your kids that, you know, your words have impact, even if you're behind a screen, is extremely important because cyberbullying is almost more powerful than when it's one-on-one -on -one in person. Yeah, absolutely. And we've had even, you know, first responders that have taken their own lives and part of the element was, you know, adults and was cyberbullying. So, yeah, it's not just confined to the schools. Um, so with the career path then, before we get into your entrance into the military was was the Air Force what you were already considering or were there other things that you were dreaming about prior to then? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of things. I had a lot of dreams. Actually, I wanted to be in um, I wanted to be in film from when I was like three or four years old. I wanted to be an actress and I was a theater geek. Um, and I only decided I really wanted to be an actress around like six or seven years old when I found out how much school you had to do to be a doctor. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to be in school that long. I want to be an actress. And then I figured out that um, 
being an actress, you don't make any money, especially if you can't sing um, and work your way up through all the prestigious like schools to do so. And I couldn't sing. And uh, and then I'm like, well, I don't know exactly what I want to do. Like, I don't know what I want to do. 9-11 happened. My brother was already in the military at that point. I saw what he did. And um, I mean, up until the last minute, I was like, no, I'll, I'm, I'm just going to go into the military. Like, I don't know what I want to do. When I get out of the military, I'll have, you know, college benefits. Um, I'll have a skill set. Um, and I'll, I'll go from there and see what happens. And uh, also my parents, you know, told me either you start paying rent once you get out of high school or you can sleep on the street um, or you can go into the military. And if you go in the military and you have to wait a little bit, we'll cover that rent. No problem until you enter. So I was kind of forced, forced to leave, forced to choose, forced to do something. And um, I wouldn't change anything that I did. Um, I mean, I, I would have loved to have gone to college. I would have loved to, have had that experience, but there was no way I was going to go to college and put myself into debt, not knowing what I wanted to do. It's a stupid, stupid thing to do to go into college and just rack on the debt and not even maybe be happy with what you do in life. Like, so I, I, I went to the military. <laughs> now you ended up in a very unique role. So tell me about the role that you were in. And then I'd love to kind of get some perspectives of when you were deployed as well. So I went into uh, military intelligence in the Air Force. I was a one and two um, signals analyst. And so I went and I learned how to read signals. But when you're in the military and you do intelligence, you have a very baseline. You have a clearance. This is how intelligence works. And then they kind of push you into wherever they might be able to need you with shortages and somewhat of your training. Um and so signals and um, I, I learned Morse code. I'm an asset in the Cold War, if that ever <laughs> happens. <laughs> but I I ended up doing a lot more all source work um, and then more of the traditional SIGINT work, signals intelligence work later on in my career. And um, I did make sure when I enlisted that I got an intelligence job because that's what I wanted to do. Um, but then I... Um, I ended up after my training, I was in Ohio and then I, and then I ended up on my first deployment. Okay. And where, which countries did you find yourself overseas? I was in Baghdad, Iraq, 2007 and 2008. And I got put into the position of an all source analyst, which I'd had no true all source training, but, and I had been put in a, in lieu of army tasking position. And so I was fulfilling, I was backfilling a spot because the army didn't have the bodies to do it at the time. And uh, I was in multinational forces, Iraq's intelligence cell, uh, where all the intelligence from all of Iraq came together. And um, you, there was like different cells that specialized in different things. And what I was doing was taking all the intelligence from the provinces in my specialty, putting it all together, and then pushing that information out where um, basically commanders could read and see and get atmospherics and it would go up into General Petraeus's read book and he would get that information as well. And so I did that um, for about six and a half, seven months. And I, I learned there 
to take ownership of your work and your product. And if you want it to be something, you make it that something. And, um, you know, also knowing that the intelligence, the information I was collecting, and it was um, specifically, I studied uh, the Jay Shalmati um, Shia militia. So um, Iranian-backed and Iranian-fed insurgents that were, um, you know, constantly fighting with us and constantly fighting with the the other um, the other Iraqis there that weren't the the same mindset as them. Um, it was it was very interesting, and I had to learn so much. Like I had to learn things and read things phonetically. Um, I obviously wasn't trained in a language, and then when your language is uh, translated and provided to you, then you have to read through it and learning how to read through things and speak on things and brief things that I'd never seen or touched before. And I was 21. <laughs> so getting put into a position when you're 21 years old with that kind of responsibility um, and with that kind of uh, mindset in the middle of a war zone, uh, that was definitely an experience. I was mostly safe all the time too. I had a very cush deployment. I didn't experience a lot of things like a lot of people did. They they wouldn't let me off base as much as I tried <laughs> um, because they cost too much money. So I think, you know, they kept us in our little buildings and helped the rockets didn't fall down upon us. But other than that, uh, my Iraq deployment was, was, was great. I really enjoyed every single second of it. Beautiful. Well, you might have a very unique perspective on the next question. I always ask this um, of anyone who was deployed and the, the preface is, as you know, non-military personnel, we get a very polarizing view of war, either very pro, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out, or very anti, they're all baby killers. And you get the actual men and women on the ground uh, who, you know, offer a very different perspective, a real world perspective. This is the human side of what we saw. Um, so your perspective might even be more of what you were actually receiving and, and sending than than visually. But the first part is, regardless of the politics that sent us over, for example, to Baghdad, um, was there a moment, a kind of aha moment, where you realized that there are still horrendous people over here that are maybe even terrorizing the Iraqi people that need to be taken care of? Yeah, you know, once you land on the ground and you understand what's going on the target set, your, your politicians and why you're there really disappears. You have a mission. Right. And even at 21, like, I think when we're in our 20s, politics are something that we should dabble in because our brains aren't fully developed. <laughs> so we don't get it and get the understanding anyways. And I never like I went there and I had a mission and I was seeing things happening. And I mean, I'm talking about like I, I, I specialized in reports that required looking at some pretty horrendous acts. So whatever happened on the ground would come through me and I'd filter through it. So I had to read all of the IED reports and strikes against our people and look at all the images and put everything together and take the atmospherics of what was going on. And the thing is, no matter where you are, when it comes to war, yes, there are the insurgents or the other side military doing bad things and then there's you but then there's the ground damage and the collateral that's happening in between and you know anybody who studied history 
the bad people and even the good people, you know, end up hurting people. Like it just happens. They get hurt and they die. And it's not like they're specifically targeting them when they're on the good side. On the bad side, they're specifically targeting them, using them as human shields, whatever it may be. And you're in there at that moment. So there's no point in just getting angry about something and throwing a fit and talking about it and just being mad. You take action. You do your part in your role to save as many lives as possible. And you know where you are that cog in that wheel. Uh, you know where you are responsible and what you can do and where you can make an impact while you're over there. You have all the time in the world to get home and then go, why was I there in the first place? Well, that was pointless. But when you're on the ground and when you're there and you're doing the work, you know what your role is to make it better and to see how many lives you can save or on the other end, how many lives you can take to make sure that you save more in the long run. Um, I had the unique experience while I was in Iraq, there was a special forces compound that had um, a medical clinic that was opened up a few times a week on the edge of base and they would bring Iraqis in. And there was a linguist that works in our cell who knew about it. And he had been like in Iraq for like three years as a contractor. And so he knew all the ins and outs and what he could and what he couldn't do. And one day, cause he knew I was super interested about the people. He said, do you want to come with me to these clinics and pass out candy, play with the children, talk to people. And so once a week, I somehow convinced my leadership to let me go with him to the edge base and meet the kids and play with the kids and talk to the people and see the people that were being affected. See the people that, like they would come in from with snivels to brain tumor, tumors to gunshot wounds. And there was one doctor there and a few medics that would patch them up. And you got to hear their stories and what was happening to them and what they were hoping for and seeing the difference that we were making and the effects that we were having on the people while we were there. And uh, it just, you know, it opened my eyes that, no matter what happened in Iraq or in Afghanistan, which we'll get to Afghanistan in a second because I was there too, like I made an impact while I was there. What I did when I was there mattered. And no matter what anybody says about it politically or whatever, even in my, mo my own mind, I come around and talk about it too with my close friends and family. I know I made a difference while I was there. And what I did um, helped not only people on the ground, but also, um, hopefully saved lives, uh, the, my, my fellow military members that were there with the intelligence I provided and worked with. And you see, that's exactly the other part of the question, which you already answered was with their moments of compassion and kindness. Well, there, there you go. And I think that's just it. We don't get the harsh reality of the, the, you know, the cost of war, the casualties, the collateral damage. And then we don't get the, incredible acts of kindness and compassion there's one video i mean i think it went viral but of these i think they were special forces soldiers running out to rescue um afghani or, or iraqi child that was caught in the crossfire and they ran out into a hail of bullets to grab this child and then ran through that hail of bullets again to come back those are the images that we don't see you know we see when you know the drone strike kills whatever and you know and obviously we see the one time where the soldier you know executes a prisoner you know there's a rape whatever and we get those stories out in you know, a front and center but the regular 
heroism and the kindness and compassion that occur in all these battlefields, not only from our own people, but from the native people as well, is rarely relayed. And that's what I love when I hear someone like you, you know, telling us, educating us on, on what you saw with your own eyes. Yeah, there was in Iraq, one of the, the times I was there, there was a woman that was holding a toddler and she told me that the, the girl's name was Cora. And I'm like, there's no way her name is actually Cora. She's saying not to try to make it more like Americanized. But, you know, like she's like here, like they're, they always want you to hold their babies and their kids. And she, you know, throws the kid onto me and I was holding her. And like, I, I look back now and I just like, she was just so cute and so sweet and so innocent. And ISIS probably ended up killing her at one point. That's all I could think is like, she was a, she was a little girl in 2007. She was probably three. And so therefore she was in her late teens when ISIS took over. And I'm like, I wonder whatever happened to this child. And I'm like, I wonder what happened to her mother. Right. And you look back and you're like, we have over 20 years while we were at war in both of those countries. And all that is really highlighted is that they failed and that we went and hurt people and lots of people died. But I mean, so many lives were touched in so many different aspects on either sides of what happened. And the problem is with our media and even with just the, the mindset of humanity is if it bleeds, it leads. And it just spreads like wildfire and people are just more receptive to negativity and doom. And I mean, if we were to be telling all the feel good stories that happened all the time, it just wouldn't get as much of like attention as it would get otherwise. And without the monster media machine that we have in our world, how do we get our voices out? It's, it's, it's really difficult or kind of at their whim, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I think that's just it. It, it, the kindness. I, I just, I disagree because I see it, but I don't disagree with you. I just think that culturally people need to see it themselves. But I think, you know, videos, for example, of kindness and compassion do go viral and they're not playing on fear. They're playing on, they're not playing. They're, they're coming from a place of hope and kindness and compassion, but we've been allowed to kind of be brainwashed that, as you said, if it bleeds, it leads or sex sells, which we'll get to in a bit, because obviously that works too. Um, you touched on Afghanistan as well. So before we transition to your you know, journey out of the military, um, the same kind of perspectives while you were in Afghanistan. Yeah, Afghanistan was a different, a different deployment. That's for sure. Um, after being in Iraq and, you know, uh, working off of an infrastructure where I was in a palace, although it was, you know, it was a ratty palace, but I went to Afghanistan and I ended up in a, like a shack that was made by the Russians, maybe in the eighties that was falling apart. Um, the infrastructure was worse. The people, um, definitely were a different type of people. Um, gosh, Afghanistan's been kept in the dark ages for years and they're going right back to it now that we're gone. And so Afghanistan was different. My mission was different. I was a SIGINT targeter. Um, and so I was, you know, really, really targeting instead of just collecting the intelligence and providing reports, I was assisting action arms and targeting the bad guys. And so there's a different level of 
you know, a mindset that was going on. I was definitely sending Americans in the harm's way every single day uh, with the intelligence I provided and trying to do it in a very um, precise way to keep from bad things happening on base. And so you you have a very heavy weight on your shoulders through the entire deployment, what you're doing. And granted, I, I didn't leave base. I stayed on base. It was very easy for me in that aspect. Um, you know, there's a few complex attacks, you know, a few rockets, no big deal. Um, but knowing that you are sending your your brothers and sisters out to where they might not come home every single day and you're the one that was going okay go that way <laughs> was kind of kind of nerve-wracking for a while and then th- that led me to you know learn how to let go of the information I provide and know that I've done everything that I could that was a really huge lesson that was taught for me was when you have the information you've provided the information and you give it out. You can't expect for the outcome to be your responsibility, unfortunately. And um, so that was, that was a huge life lesson. Um, Unlike, you know, everything that was providing in Iraq was not like an actionable information. It was more of a report form. Everything that I was providing in Afghanistan was actionable. Um, So it, it was different. And it was, you know, it was also a different war. The people that we were, I guess, fighting and trying to um, keep from doing bad things to bad people over there. It was just a completely different war and what was going on. And I think that's something that Americans didn't realize that the Iraq and the Afghan war were completely different wars with completely different goals, completely different target sets and how they worked and moved. and. Um, I mean, I didn't even know they were different until I showed up in Afghanistan, really. And I was in the military, right? I didn't know. I just knew that we were at war in the Middle East when I was younger. And that's what was very much stipulated towards us through the media was that America's in Iraq and Afghanistan. No, they're completely separate. <laughs> it was completely different missions and completely different people and cultures. So it's it was uh, it was different, and I, I I'm not going to say it was as great as a deployment as Iraq was because it was you know definitely a groundhog day. It was definitely 17 hours, six days a week, putting information together, pushing it out forward, staying up late to see if it worked, um, putting on you know the, the the predator feeds and the drone feeds to watch everything happening going on and. And, you know, the thing was that I, I got so comfortable in that lifestyle. Once you're deployed and anybody who's been deployed will tell you this, is that there's a comfort to the constant adrenaline rush that you're in um, and a constant comfort to the uniformity of your life. And um, it's just easier than coming home and having to deal with a lot of people. And so I, I actually tried to extend my deployment in Afghanistan and I couldn't. Um, it was through Christmas. I was trying to extend it through the new year. And um, so, and it didn't happen. I think where we at, yeah, it was actually 10 years ago today that I, um, I came home from Afghanistan. Happy anniversary. So, I'm looking at my clock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, you touched on um, the, you know, providing all this, this data 
to a group of special operations special forces to go out and enact that you know that plan using using your information and it really kind of parallels to me as a firefighter as a paramedic you know we do all the training we train diligently excuse me diligently you know we use our protocols and more often than not you know people still die and that inability to save i personally found probably one of the most crushing elements of all the you know the trauma that came with the job and it sounds to me like that was the thing as well if you if you have this expectation that your information is going to create a you know a guaranteed success then you're setting up yourself for failure the same way as a paramedic expects that person to live because they did x y and z Yeah, I can imagine that. And I think that's like with anybody in any kind of role where you're a first responder or your law enforcement, um, definitely within the military. And uh, that leads me to like where the people I keep around me as friends, which I don't have many that I keep close, they're all have been in that type of role. Because I think afterwards, um, whether you continue on continuing that role in life in some way, shape or form, or if you don't, there's a different kind of mindset. Um, you have a different kind of humor. You have a different kind of outlook on life. Your complaints about life aren't the same as everybody everyday complaints, right? Because you know what's worth, you know, kind of griping about a little bit and what's not worth griping about in life. And so um, you, you are part of kind of, the family, whether it be military or law enforcement or paramedics or firefighters, that you just see the world a little bit differently. Uh, and then when you come home or whether you get off shift, um, life's just got a different shade to it. I tell people like, you know, so when people think people who are in the military, like we, we're always so uncomfortable with the being thanked. And I think I've become even more uncomfortable with the aspect because of what I do is I provide support to law enforcement directly. And I try to explain to people, I'm like, you thank military members and for their service. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the gratitude. But have you, have you thanked a law enforcement officer or a first responder today? Because they're in that deployment mindset every single day of their life and they don't get to come home. Like they have to go through that adrenaline dump and the constant worry and the mental toll of, you know, that patient dying or that person that they were trying to help who's not ever going to be helped. They go through that every single day. And in our world, um, unfortunately, in America, nobody's thinking law enforcement any Well, not nobody, but the large majority of America is being directed to talk down to them and abolish them. And I'm like, that's, that's wrong. <laughs> it's just so wrong. Like you're almost hypocritical if you would thank military for their service and not turn back around and be grateful and thank first responders for their service as well. No, absolutely. Especially like you said, law enforcement. I mean, you know, they're paying for the sins of, you know, 0.1% of the, their profession. And even then, as one of my guests, uh, who's a, a Vegas police officer pointed out, he's like, a lot of these cases where the officers made the mistake, they have paid 
you know exactly the way they should have you know the, with the the um you know prosecution going through and the jail time and all that stuff i mean nothing was the ball wasn't dropped when it came to that so it's it's been heartbreaking to see that of course we all have you know rotten apples in our profession but everyone does there's shitty plumbers out there you know so you don't stop getting your house you know pipes fixed because of one shitty plumber um so with your transition out i, I think this is an interesting part of your your journey as well because you were a schoolgirl during 9-11 and now you actually get to to be part of that kind of homeland security element so walk me through what made you decide to transition out the military and then, and then where you found yourself and under which role oh man i got out of the military because i uh, the bureaucratic process within the military uh, just got to be too much i love the mission i love making a difference but i did not like the tonist mindset that they had where um, the leadership was just constantly stepping on your neck for really stupid stuff. And I think military professions that don't have an active, don't have an active role in the mission um, unless they're deployed tend to do that. And so I got out and I also realized I could make a lot of money <laughs> as a contractor out of the NSA. Um, where I was when I was enlisted. So I spent two years at the NSA while I was enlisted and my deployment was actually out of the NSA. And then I'm like, oh, look at all these contractors. They don't have to deal with the military and they make more money. Okay, yeah, let's do this. And so I got out after my six year enlistment and I contracted at the NSA and, and you know, I was enjoying it, uh, but the, what I was doing at the NSA was not as hands-on as I wanted to. And I wanted to be more involved in like an American kind of mindset mission, which the NSA doesn't technically do. <laughs> um, so I looked around and I started submitting jobs uh, for jobs. And I got one with the FBI working at the terrorist screening center and the terrorist screening operations unit doing watch listing, which was really cool. And so, like you said, I was, I was in school. I was 15 years old, um, on 9-11 and I watched what happened. And then I worked, ended up working directly in a building that was completely created because of the Patriot Act, which was a result of 9-11. And, um, it was like, man, my entire life revolves around this day <laughs> and what's become of it and what I've learned and what I've done and the good that was happening in that building um, with the watch listing program. Um, once again, it never really said out there in the media. Sometimes you could find some good stories on a federal prosecutions of terrorism and what happened. But I mean, I was watching terrorist attacks be thwarted every single week. I was watching things happen that American lives on American soil were being saved. And I'm sure to this day it's happening because that unit's still working um, where I saw situations happening where because of the communication that was required because of the Patriot Act and, um, you know, making sure that our counterterrorism mindset worked as a well-oiled machine interagency uh, I mean it was just so cool I loved that job it was a lot of fun and it was a there was a lot of good people it was a 24-hour watch floor the cool part the really cool part was is I worked four tens and I had three-day weekends and because I worked in a skiff that I walked away and I didn't do any work outside of work but it was 
like, you know, that rare job where you were excited to go to work. And as you walked away from work, you're like, man, that, that was a good week of work. I can't wait to go back. Like, I never had a moment where I was like, oh, God, I need a break. And you get to leave a work, your work at work, too, because you physically cannot take it because it's all classified. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Man, that, oh, gone are those days <laughs> for me. <laughs> <laughs> But with the Patriot Act, you know, we always hear again the negative. And of course, there must be a dark side where it can be abused. But kind of talk to me about the spectrum that you saw through your eyes. And again, not, not obviously, you know, an area that you can't talk about, but what, what great things was it doing? And then where is the danger for the average person as far as their privacy? So I, I think that we've all seen in the news and the things that have happened with the Patriot Act and FISA warrants and what's taken place with, um, you know, what has happened within the government and tapping digital systems in the last, I would say, five to 10 years. There's been some pretty egregious stories out there. Um, I never saw that. I never saw any of that kind of activity. And also when it came to FISA warrants and different things, like, especially working at the NSA, like I, the, the precautions that were put in place for collection purposes and different things, like it was no joke. Like we had rules we had to follow where we were going to go to jail for the rest, like for not the rest of our lives for a very long time. So, and that was made very apparent to you working in any classified environment. These are the rules and you follow them. And then the rules themselves being followed and the work that was being done because of the Patriot Act, there are certain things that needed to be done to ensure that certain people couldn't do things. Certain people couldn't move certain places. And there was always evidence behind that. There was always information behind that that was very apparent. It wasn't just like, I think he's a terrorist. Let's open a case on him and tap everything. That just, that's just not how it happened. There's so many different steps that had to take places and federal law enforcement agents that had to take so many different steps and judges and different things. And then for the majority and the bulk of the people who worked on certain things, they never even had the ability to make those decisions. It's not like Joe Schmo Kara could go in and be like, okay, I think I'm going to listen to this person today. And I think this person should have a case on them today. That's just not how things work. There's just not a free for all. Let's listen to people's phones. Let's tap into com people's computers. It just doesn't happen that way. And the information is so organized and monitored and checked and the legal parameters on it are so strict that they know what's happening when it's happening and they know if you break the rules like I'm talking computers get taken away and you get taken out of buildings kind of thing if you've done something you're not supposed to do I personally and my personal opinion when it comes to the Patriot Act like I know I'm not doing anything wrong I know I don't have much to hide um and so I'm okay with the actions the government has to take to ensure that certain people are being looked at and watched so bad things don't happen to me and my family. I don't, I, I fly a lot. And that thought goes through my brain every time I get on a plane, every measure that is taken, that 
the plane could be turned into a weapon. And I think that's just because of the, the world that I grew up in and what happened. But I'm not ever worried about that at the airport, especially since I, I worked kind of that realm. I could spot certain people now too in airports and I'm, I feel safer because of it. Um, I know I sound like a bad, like government propaganda person. <laughs> Um, but that's just, that's just how I think because I've seen it in action and I know it was the right thing to do. Well, and that's that's just it. So who better to ask someone about the Patriot Act than someone that worked using the Patriot Act? You know what I mean? And of course, there'd be different perspectives, but you know, it's important that we hear the pros, the upside. Can it be abused? Absolutely, and it has been. You know, but so many areas have been abused. Now, with um, I think it was was it Mike Glover or maybe it was Mark Polymeros, but someone pointed out um. You know that we haven't had a, a terror, an organized terrorist attack like that since 9/11, and that's a huge win for everyone in the shadows who's out there. And I mean the shadows in a positive um, sense, out there protecting our country. Certainly, you know, here in elements of in in the UK where I'm originally from, you know, we're getting these random attacks. We're getting someone driving through, you know, London Bridge, and um, you know the pulse shooting here in in Central Florida. What what is the challenge of finding those? Because it seems like these are lone wolves who are are influenced by outside sources. But you know, is this because they don't have that paper trail that's easier to follow from a larger organized terrorist agency? Man, they're so hard. The lone wolf attacks, um, the homegrown terrorists, as they would call them, domestic terrorism. A lot of them are influenced, like you said, by outside areas. And there's there's ways to track them down and find them. And I I mean, I, I can't throw out numbers and things like that, but for every one of those that have happened, and there's gotta be dozens that we've stopped um, and they're doing their best. They're the ones that get through, the ones that go under the radar. Um, what was it? And I it kind of stayed quiet, Tennessee last year, that guy in the RV who let off the bomb. Yes, do you remember that? I do. It blew off all the windows. That got quiet. Yeah, that got quiet really quick. But that dude was nuts and had his RV and he did have signs of his craziness, like fully out there on his social media. And it wasn't caught. And what I'm saying is, yeah, we have these lone wolf attacks, these one, two attacks that happen. But without what we have right now in place and the technologies and the laws and things with the Patriot Act, it would be a lot worse, like a lot, lot worse than what you're seeing. They are catching a lot of them. Um, I mean, how do we stop them all? I don't think we can. No, you can't. You can't. You can't control. You can't control mental illness, unfortunately. And a lot of these people who carried out these attacks and done these things are definitely mentally ill absolutely and they have a mindset and a delusion in their mind that they think that they're doing the right thing and it's it's really unfortunate but that that there's just so many different variables at play and sometimes you just can't stop them on well one you talk about going away and again, I don't I don't watch the news very much. But again, you, even if it's social media, you're aware of what's being continually discussed and reported on. But the Vegas shooting, the the magnitude of that 
it seems like, I mean, I, I don't know if it's just the little echo chamber I'm in. I felt like a week later, no one was talking about it anymore, which is one of the most horrendous terrorist attacks that we've had on domestic soil. And that just blows me away. I, uh, I don't even know what to say about the Vegas shooting. I have, haven't had um, federal law enforcement that was like family and different things. And I, although I was um, out of that world at that time, um, I saw from the outside, from an open source side, and then also like friends that it's just, it was a lot to process and hard to see what was coming in. And then it got really quiet. And that's all I know. Like I, it's, there are some things that I think a lot of people look at and they can't explain, um, and what they see. And there's a lot of tragedy behind it. And, um, some people like to run with conspiracy and get boisterous about things you're doing in what is happening. Uh, I don't think it does any good. <laughs> I really don't. I don't think that running and maybe getting into an echo chamber or just continuously harping on certain things and taking that energy and trying to figure it all out when there's really no action that you can take. Maybe you can take that energy and direct it into something where you can do good and where you can take that time and that mindset and whatever you have at your actual disposal to impact people's lives for the better instead of just sitting there on the internet and responding to people's comments and yelling at people all day long. Maybe you might want to take that energy and point it towards something else. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I agree, especially with the, you know, like you said, hanging on to a thing, but it just felt just, just measuring up to all the other disasters that we've had, all the tributes and, you know, the investigations that just specifically the Vegas shooting itself as you said, was was there and then extremely quiet on the media outlets and everything else. And I just found that I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all, but it didn't match the how you would trend every other disaster that we had in the US and the exposure it got. Exactly. So that's when you ask 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 the question, who's controlling our media? What are what are the media's intentions? Um I mean I had people I knew personally that were there when it happened. And I, I got really upset about that shooting only because in my mindset, I'm like, I went to Afghanistan and Iraq. So the people that I care about and know don't have to deal with that kind of crap. And it really hurt me to sit down the week after with some people that I knew very closely and listen to what they had to go through. And it made me so angry. And then I'm like, well, like, how do I help them? And so sitting down and sharing some of the stories that I would never share publicly to them, to let them know that they experience things that other people have also gone through and how that you can get past it. Because um, at that point in time, there's nothing I can do to keep to have kept it from happening, right? But I agree, the media, the media, <laughs> the media monster, the media machine, a lot of things that happen in our country um, or don't happen fall solely back onto what is being um, fed into our eyes and ears every single day. Absolutely. Yeah. Preaching to the choir right now. Um, all right. Well, talking <laughs> about 
doing something good. And I agree completely when a tragedy's happened, it's, you know, as they say, look for the helpers. You know, how, how do you improve? It's already happened. You know, how do you either proactively stop one in the future or how do you heal the people that were hurt? So walk, to, walk me through then your transition out of the FBI and into Deliver Fund. I took two years off after I had um, had one of my one of my kids. Um, I decided to like try to do the mom thing, <laughs> stay at home, um, which is not in my character. Um, so for two years, I didn't work, and and I moved because I was on the East Coast. I moved out of the Northern Virginia area out here to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and you know me, I was I was ready to get moving and start working again. My brain was atrophying. I needed to be able to do what I love to do, which was hold people accountable for their actions when they do bad things. And I kept my LinkedIn profile up to date with what I did. And I started looking around for jobs here in New Mexico, and I really wasn't finding anything. And I got contacted by Nick McKinley on LinkedIn, just very, you know, cold outreach. And I'm like, okay, what's this? And he's like, I would like to have a phone call with you about a job opportunity. And I had the call with him and he's like, well, this is my organization. This is what we do. You have the skill set. Would you like to hunt human traffickers? And I'm like, uh, hell yes, absolutely. Sure. I don't know what any of that means, but let's do it. <laughs> so, you know, the, he trained me up and taught me um, how to use my skill set and my intelligence skill set within the new target set and learn the new target set and learn the methodologies, which I already knew the methodologies. I just really never had put them down on paper in a way to where you can transition them from one target set to another. And so taking that skill set that I had and understanding that I had of the intelligence cycle and how we did things overseas and then learning what human trafficking actually was, which was actually a fire hose to the face of information that I didn't know existed in our country. And then uh, working with law enforcement and working with survivors and understanding how they uh, learned and saw things and just being on the ground through the first couple of years. Uh, that's just how it happened. I started off as a part-time employee doing work at home. And then I just kept doing more and more and more work. And then, you know, the organization grew and we, you know, put processes in place and started training more law enforcement, start flying all over the country to work with law enforcement during operations to help them find human traffickers. Um, always behind my computer. I'm not that big of a tough guy. I just, you know, kick down doors with my mouse. Um, <laughs> and learning the best way that uh, I was able to use that skill set that I had, like my brain was hardwired in the intelligence world. And then I just moved it over into human trafficking. And so that's what I've been doing ever since. Well, and it's amazing listening to the journey up to this point, you know, and, and the the combat zones that you'd operated in and the, the members of the military, the specific groups that you work with. I mean, that's a force to be reckoned with when you apply it to, you know, a, a member of the underworld who hasn't got that skill set. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, you can see what a huge asset you must be. So with human trafficking, because I've heard, you know, a couple of the podcasts I listened to prior, you know, you mentioned about there being kind of misunderstanding of trafficking. So talk to me about, you know, what human trafficking actually is and then the magnitude of that 
internationally and most importantly, domestically? Human trafficking is the exploitation of human beings for profit. And so where you have a human being that is being forced, um, frauded or coerced into doing something for money and not being able to keep that money, they are being trafficked. They are enslaved because they're not being able to keep the profit of their labor, whether that be sex trafficking or uh, labor trafficking or <laughs> organ trafficking, um, whether it be you know child brides being sold into marriage. Um, and you know it happens in the United States. It happens overseas. Um, it happens all over this world, but the you know the number one takeaway, of what human trafficking is, is the number one customer of human trafficking, the number one client in this world is the United States. We provide the most revenue, whether it's from labor trafficking or sex trafficking here in the US or overseas. We are the number one payers of that. We're the ones that pay into that problem. And, um, you know, a lot of people, when they think human trafficking, they think taken and they think girls being kidnapped. and on the sex trafficking side, the reality is that's not what it looks like. What it looks like are, for the most part here, young girls, teens into their early 20s that are being controlled by a trafficker to advertise themselves for sex and bring that money back to them. And then they are at their whim and they're being forced to do it every single day, whether it be selling themselves on the internet whether they are being forced to walk what they would call a track, which was kind of like a red light district and jump into cars, make the money, hand it back to their trafficker. And they're, they're being manipulated and coerced to do so. And um, the, the hard part about that is the purchasers, they cannot tell the difference between a trafficking victim and a willing sex worker um, because that trafficking victim is so deeply ingrained into the work that she has to do for her own survival that she is putting on a show so she gets that money and so you can't tell the difference because they are so scared for their own lives and their own being that you just don't see it so it there's so much behind it the psychology behind it the actions behind it i mean it's that'd be like a five to six hour podcast if we got into the the, the nitty gritty of it all. But um, here in the United States, uh, our main problem with human trafficking is the domestic sex trafficking industry happening every day under our noses. So stay on the international for a second, because obviously I want to explore domestic as that being, as you said, the most prominent. But um, I had Tamia Naj on the show, um, and she did an incredible job, you know, of, of kind of walking people through. And there she is, you know, being offered, um, I forget the role now, but it was in Canada. I think it was, was it was it a sports massage? I thought you talk about that before. So, no, so um, Tamea got offered. She was in Hungary. She was in a desperate financial situation. And she met somebody who offered her a um, way to get to Canada and be a babysitter. That's what it was, babysitter. She thought she was... She was going to go to Canada and be a babysitter. And she signed a contract that wasn't in Hungarian. It was in English. She's like, I'm just going to be a babysitter. I'm going to go over there. And what she was really signing was paperwork 
to be an exotic dancer. Like at that time in Canada, you could actually sign paperwork to get visas to come in to be an exotic dancer in Canada, which that sense has been remedied. But she showed up and from the second she hit the ground, um, she was being exploited. And so on an overseas level, on a trafficking level overseas, that that happens all the time. And it happens also coming here into the US. Um, the sports massage that I was talking about, there was a tracking victim that I watched be recovered in Houston who had been lured from a South America country into Houston. And she had her son with her and she was an actual massage therapist. She was credentialed in her country. She was a professional. And when she got brought up here, the company that she went through, they shoved her in an apartment and made her start selling herself and then used her son as leverage that they were going to hurt him, kill him, sell him, whatever it may be. Um, and so the false promises when it comes to bringing people into the United States is a big one. And even overseas, um, when the trafficking takes place there, it's false promises, false promises of money, of shelter, of protection, especially in more corrupt places. Um, and forcing them to work constantly. And when I say work, whether it be labor or whether it be sex trafficking, it's under a constant um, threat that they are going to be hurt, their family's going to be hurt, their children are going to be hurt, um, whatever it may be. They they have a over-looming control over their victims that requires manipulation and attention and understanding um, of how to do so. Well, I think as well, when Tamia told her um, story, when you put yourself in, you know, obviously a, a primarily a female body first in a foreign country where you don't speak the language and you have your passport and your funds taken away, only then can you understand the vulnerability. And then you start playing the mind games of, oh, you, you know, you, we got you through customs, so now you owe us all this money and you have to pay off this bill. And before you can just see that kind of Chinese water torture where a clear mind will be like, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. I wouldn't fall for that. But then you kind of follow Tamir down her journey and you're like, okay, I get it now. I mean, it was just slowly the thumbscrew went on from, you know, this false promise to, oh, you just got to dance in the club to the next thing you're being, you know, pimped out. And, you know, thank God she was able to, to, as you talk about self-rescue, ultimately have the courage to get herself out there. But, you know, here you have to hear a full story to truly understand how these women and or men get to that point. Yeah, it's, you have to hear the stories of the survivors. Um, and, you know, when it comes to, survivors and rescue I I don't even ever now like my mindset is in the mindset that human trafficking victims aren't ever rescued by another person they're rescued by themselves because the the, the control mental manipulation and the place where they're at when they're offered services and offered assistance from law enforcement um, I mean the, all law enforcement does is open the door a survivor has to have the courage to walk through it and completely pull themselves out of where they are. And anybody who's been in any kind of situation where you've been emotionally damaged or you're in a, you know, whether it be a domestic situation or whatnot, where you are just afraid to leave something, it's hard. And gosh, I can't, I can't personally even imagine 
the strength that it takes for a survivor to find the courage to rescue themselves and get out of those very, very dangerous, very terrifying situations. You just can't get up and walk away. Um, People are always like, well, why don't they just walk out of the hotel room? Why don't they just leave? There's so much behind that. They can't. They're terrified. Their families are possibly being threatened. They might have a drug addiction and they don't even know how to shoot up their own heroin at that point. Right. Um, And I don't, I haven't experienced it, but anybody who's ever had an addiction problem, imagine just walking away from your addiction and not being weaned off properly and what your body will end up going through. Not just your body, but your mind. Right. So there's that. And then there's also trauma bonds that trafficking victims that have are created with their trafficker. Right. So a lot of them think that they might even be in love with their trafficker um, or their trauma bond is one where they're constantly trying to appease their trafficker so they don't get beat. Right. They have to bring the money, show the respect or they're going to get hurt or injured. And it's not going to be in the face because if their face is injured, they're not going to be able to make the money next day to sell themselves. So traffickers know how to injure their victims without it being visible on a physical level. And so, you know, you've got all these things in play and you just expect a trafficking victim to run to a law enforcement officer with open arms and be like, save me, especially after they've been trained mentally by their trafficker that cops are the enemy. Cops are the ones that are going to hurt them. And so there's so much behind it. And the only way, the only way you will ever even get a glimmer of understanding of what a trafficking uh, victim went through and what a survivor has had to do to overcome that is listen to their stories. Yeah, 100%. Now, with you, you touched on addiction, something that me personally, I as a firefighter paramedic, have witnessed the absolute, you know, epic failure that is the prohibition of drugs and putting you know all the power into the underworld um and allow it to be used to to you know by predators whether it's in the sex trafficking side whether it's in the prison systems um and when i think back in my career now i can think of some calls that i ran on where absolutely there was one specific that bangs in my mind um literally saved the woman's life but i mean it's medically a crazy case in itself but there was a man in the room now the you know it, it was probably a pimp um, what impact do you see the prohibition of drugs having in the world that you're in? Did you even get any unique perspectives, for example, in Afghanistan, um, of that funding? You know, whether it's the, the uh, international trafficking, whether it's just the, the terrorism side. And because, I mean, for me, having seen, you know, Portugal, Switzerland, some of these countries that have put that power back in the medical community and treated addiction as mental health, to me, that's the model that we need to be going forward. But I've epically loaded that question. So, <laughs> but that's just my my perspective. What what is your perspective on the element of prohibition of drugs on the world that you live in now? So I never really saw much of in Afghanistan. I did get to see the pictures of the marijuana fields that were twenty feet high, um, and I got to hear the stories of. Um, humanters out there working their sources who they were taking intelligence from, you know, warlords that were snorting black tar heroin in front of them. You know, like some of the stuff that went on over there was pretty crazy. But um, over here, I would, you know what, I, I 100% agree with you. 
it needs to be treated as a mental health issue. Um, I, I was running around with law enforcement um, on a track and they did a operation where they went to um, try to make contact with a trafficking victim. Um, and all you do is you, you pull up your vehicle you know, it's all a whole undercover thing. And then when everybody was safe and secure and stopped and talking to her, um, she was at the very end of really a life cycle of where she was at in life. She was like 27 years old and she had no soul when you looked at her. Her brain was fried. And I know you've seen it. Um, not a lot of people who haven't been in that world on the streets don't really see what happens to somebody when their brain has just been constantly fried with drugs for years and years and they're gone They're It's like a level of dementia almost um, when you're talking to them and they went through her purse uh, and she didn't have a cell phone that worked on her. She had some old ones that were all broken apart. There were needles in there. There was some cash. Um, but the one thing that was in there, because she wasn't giving us her her name, she didn't have any ID on her, uh, open up a card. She was carrying a birthday card that her grandma had given her two years earlier. So I, I had a birth date and I had a name because her name was on there. And um, I was able to figure out who she was for the cops and everything and figure out what was going on. But this was not a trafficking issue at this point. I don't even think that her trafficker at that point would have been the drug dealer. But she didn't have like a true pimp in that sense at that point in time. And I go back and I looked back through her social media and find all of her information. And at one point she was being trafficked by a trafficker and she had children and she had life in her eyes. And you could see that several years before that she was not on drugs and what likely ended up happening is that drugs were a control mechanism for a trafficker. She got addicted and the cycle went through and she got combative with law enforcement, like physically combative that day. And they had to arrest her. They had no choice. She was extremely violent. And so they had to take her in. And I sat there thinking, and I'm like, this is a drug problem. And this drug problem isn't going to be fixed because she's just going to go to jail for a few days and then let out. She's going to be offered services, but she's not going to take them because she doesn't have the mental capacity to do so. But we don't have a judge that can direct her into a mental institution to where she has to, where she has to get the services, where she can be pushed into the right direction and get the counseling that she needs and be held accountable to do it. We can't make them do it. And so I'm like, it is a mental health crisis. The, the drug problem and the homeless problem, especially here in New Mexico, is a mental health crisis. And I hate to say it, I don't ever see it being fixed with the way that our um, health care community works <laughs> and the capitalistic ways that we fund health care. And then like we point like these welfare spotlights to look like we're doing something, but we're, we're really not because of our court system doesn't have the power to do what needs to be done in those certain situations. And so I agree with you. I agree with you. The power of the war on drugs needs to be shifted and 
focused in a different direction. And I think it would help out human beings in general overall. And it would also help out in other areas and worlds of crime. If indefinitely, right, if we were able to set it up in the right way. And unfortunately, I think that the overhaul of that won't ever happen because of the way that our systems are set up and the way people profit off of um, certain things when it comes into the world of uh, pharmaceuticals and drugs. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. And it is but a, I get it and I understand. It is frustrating because I've had people, it was interesting, the first probably three years of this podcast, as I started learning about it, because I went to Portugal, I sat with Zhao Gulao, the man who actually spearheaded their decriminalization campaign in 2000. And it was amazing because I, I sat in Lisbon and watched, you know, looked at his facilities and heard about the, the kind of 10 year from worst to best when it came to addiction um, rates in the whole of the of Europe. And it was just about having the guts to stand up and say, you know, we're doing this, not, not in a kind of we're doing this no matter what you say, but putting it, educating the people, getting the vote, getting them understand the impact. And, you know, so I've seen it with my own eyes um, and spoken to the person that did it. And when you talk about the court system, imagine if any sort of addiction level arrest wasn't an arrest anymore. It was a filtering into mental health, you know, addiction, um, job creation that they do in, in Portugal the impact then that has on the workload of the law enforcement officers, the safety of the streets, if there aren't cartels now trying to murder everyone, you know, and Crips and Bloods and everything else, the court system and how much they're freed up now. Now you can focus on the pedophiles, the sex traffickers, all these these true predators in the world because you're not filling, you know, with with addicts and you're, you're addressing that. So there is no downside. I mean, there really isn't. You're making it safer for the people. You're making it safer for the law enforcement community themselves. But it's such a hard sell because we've been brainwashed into this is your brain on drugs, you know, and it's gone left and right of, of the aisle. They've all pushed the same thing. But our prison systems are like 600%, you know, greater now are our communities than they were in the 70s from 350,000 to 2.2 million today so there's any other longitudinal study this would be yeah this is you know hands down done but when it comes to the war on drugs they're still hanging on to it because like you said people are making billions of dollars off this initiative and you and i see the young men and women who die in street corners and dumpsters and you know and just just cast aside what other people are making a fortune and, you know, also, I think our, I love our constitution and everything that it does for us, but I mean, it comes aspects like where you, like, if you do provide those programs and this is what happens, there's a, a drug arrest and I'm air quoting you as they may have a drug arrest and they have to go to these programs. You have to make them go to the programs or do give them the option to go rot in prison. Like you have to. Like you have no other choice. You go here or you go sit in a cell for three years. That's and do not pass go, do not collect whatever you're stuck. Or you can be in this inpatient facility where you have your freedoms to roam and go through counseling and whatever it may be, you know. And I think that uh, a criminal is going to not a criminal, but a a criminal themselves will probably take the take the jail time and move forward, and that's where they belong. But somebody who truly has a mental health and addiction issue would be like, okay, let's do it, right? 
And then like year one is that inpatient year two is you come back three days a week. Year three is you come back and you start mentoring other people kind of thing. Like I have put this all down on paper once upon a time because that exact instance with this girl who I saw, this, it broke my heart. And to end the trafficking problem, we have to end the drug problem too. And we have to, you know, end a lot of different things and come about it from a 360 degree approach. I'm just one part of fighting human trafficking, but everybody has to be involved in every way, shape or form. And that's one of those major, major keys to that problem and fighting it is working on the drug and addiction problem. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, you t- talked about the, the homelessness issue as well. Um, again, in another one of your interviews I listened to, um, there was a very unique kind of insight when you think of like, how do you get you know, domestic? How could you, how do you domestically traffic? Well, obviously, you know, that's where you come into the prostitute pimp world, especially when you have young runaways. Talk to me about the homeless population. And why you don't see those young runaways in the the traditional statistics? Yeah. So when you are out and driving in the streets where there's large homeless populations and things that are going on, um, something I think that we don't really notice because we're really trying to ignore them and not look at the homeless in our city is the fact that there's no young girls um, or females that are out on those street corners. And there's no young girls and females out on the street corners because homeless youth and homeless females that are younger can easily be picked up by a trafficker and be offered a warm bed, be offered food, be offered whatever that makes them happy, whether it be drugs. If they go out and make the money for the trafficker, So we're not seeing that. And I implore you the next time that you're out in your city and you see the people on the streets, on the side of the streets, take notice. They're not female. They're not. If there is a female there, usually she's a lot older. But if you do see a female, I want you to look extra hard and see who's watching her. Because traffickers will also use uh, their victims to panhandle. Um, if you see children out, look extra hard because the children are being forced to panhandle, um, whether it be by their own parents or by traffickers themselves as well. And I mean, if you see a child panhandling, immediately call law enforcement. It is illegal. It is human trafficking um, to have a child out there panhandling on the side of the road. Yeah, well, I think that's an area that people myself included are very unaware of is like you said the labor side of trafficking and when Tamir talked about that one group of Hungarian men that had been smuggled in you know, purely I think I forget what it was now but it was built construction um you don't think of that and you hear about the fact they were beaten they were starved and it was horrendous here in Florida we have lots and lots of farms and I don't know you know if there are farms amongst them are those big school buses with the tops cut off if those are simply migrant workers that should be here migrant workers that slipped in you know of their own accord or if these are groups of men that are being trafficked and it's something that we don't think to look for no we don't and it is it is a huge problem and even sometimes when the migrant workers come here legally they get exploited by um, you know legitimate 
farming companies, legitimate construction companies, because the labor is cheaper and they know that they can manipulate them and scare them into taking their legitimate papers, then they won't be able to come back. And these migrant workers, sometimes the ones that are here legally, they're sending their money back to their homes. So then their kids don't get to eat, right? Their kids don't get to go to school or wherever it may be. So it's, it's tough. And I think, you know, it, there's a lot of attention um, on the southern border these days. Um, and that that influx of people coming in um, is creating more of a problem because they're easily exploitable once they get over here. And they do become victims to trafficking, whether it be in construction, whether it be in migrant farming, whatever it is, they're going to be exploited here because they know they can be easily exploited because they're not supposed to be here. And what's really sad is the people that are coming over the border, a lot of people are like, oh, it's trafficking over the border. It never starts really as trafficking. It's starting as smuggling, bringing them across um, upon their own accord. A lot of these people coming across are actually paying coyotes to come here because they are so desperate for a better life. And when they get here, that's when traffickers start picking them off and using them to traffic them. They never were coming here explicitly to be trafficked. They're coming here for a better life. And then they're being exploited a lot of times by Americans that see the potential for victims when they come across. So for people listening, talk to me about, you know, what Deliver Fund does, the, you know, the relationship you guys have with the law enforcement community and how you're able to navigate those silos that we see not only in in law enforcement we see it in ems we see it in fire to create that communication network so that you can start getting these scumbags behind bars so deliver fund is a nonprofit private intelligence organization that equips trains and advises law enforcement to combat human trafficking and so equipping we provide them with tools and technologies that we have developed um, and artificial intelligence that we have trained and we provide them to those to speed up their investigations and break down the silos between jurisdictions. So we have a database in the platform for the analysis of targeting human traffickers that holds human derived human trafficking information and detectives and uh, analysts that work for law enforcement that have access to this database uh, they can compare and find human trafficking cases within the network. So if a trafficking victim is in uh, Arizona and she pops up in Atlanta or in Florida and she comes across law enforcement operation, all the information is already there. And so it breaks down those silos between agencies, whether it be state, federal, or local. They We have many that use the database and work with us. And so... We equip them with that and then we train them how to use it. We also train everything from basic human trafficking training to uh, advanced counter human trafficking analysis, where we teach law enforcement how to do exactly what we do um, on a very in-depth level. And then the advisement portion of what we do is we're here for requests for information. We embed with law enforcement and sit with our computers like little nerds in the corner and give them real-time intelligence. Um, we believe in going after the human trafficker. So everything that we do, it's about cutting the head off of the snake, ensuring that there's intelligence provided that can lead to the arrest and prosecution of the human trafficker. 
because without a human trafficker, there are no trafficking victims. We can go all day long and offer services to these victims as we spoke about um, as a as a society, as I say we, because the Liver Fund doesn't specifically do victim services organization work. But you can't just provide that to them and the services and the out without giving them the safety of making sure that their trafficker is no longer out there. So advising law enforcement, um, working with them during operations, including large scale operations like the Super Bowl, down to, you know, just a one night operation in a small town. We're there to help them in any way and make those connections. And so we also do a lot of education on social media and on our website because everything we've learned is all stuff we can talk about, unlike our former jobs and all of our secrets on how we did what we did and what we um, were doing. We can talk about what we've learned and how we do it and what to look for. So it's a large part about what I do is why I'm on a podcast is to bring awareness and education to uh, the general populace out there. And so we provide that information as well. Beautiful. Now, where can people find the website? Deliverfund.org. Um, you can find the website. If you are a law enforcement, you're listening to this and you want training, go to deliverfund.law. And we're on all forms of social media, uh, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, if you want to follow us there. So we put information out there as well. And uh, feel free to, uh, you know, come and see what we have and what we can help you with on our websites and on our social media. We do something that's very important, which is dispelling human trafficking myths. Um, if you haven't noticed and you're on social media, a lot of what has happened in the last year and a half is a lot of like conspiracy myths and things on human trafficking. And it made a lot of traction happen in the awareness level, but it's inaccurate information. So everything that we provide is vetted through professionals, survivors, law enforcement, um, so the info that we give is accurate and you're not being led down a crazy rabbit hole of information. Another thing that I wanted to ask you, and we discussed this before we started recording, is, for example, the biggest song of this whole pandemic was WAP, Wet Ass Pussy. And through my eyes, and I'm not a prude and I'm not a Victorian, you know, I didn't come over, you know, with the Amish, um... It just seems to me that that pervasive, almost kind of like rape vibe sexuality seems to have infiltrated not only in music, but in, you know, TikToks and, you know, music videos and all those kind of things. So what have you seen as far as the trend in almost like aggressive sexuality and, and that tying into empowering sex traffickers? Our culture seems to hold up and emulate um, a lot in that kind of music realm. So within the R&B and the rap community, there's a lot of hypersexualization. And then on top of that, they, they demean women through the process. Um, it's very pimp and hoe mindset within a lot of that music and a lot of that um information coming across, especially to young minds, when they turn on their, you know, their phone, and they download the music, they go up into the, the music apps, and then the algorithms just start feeding it. And it's just art, 
right? That's what it comes across as when the artists are creating it, but that art has influence and it influences young minds. And what it does is it makes it easier for human traffickers to groom their victims. The hypersexualization numbs the adolescence to the the verbiage, the way that you talk about different sex acts, the way you look at different sex acts. I mean, I feel like when we were younger with our parents, like we would blush when we'd hear certain things like on the TV or back then it wasn't even on the radio um, or it wasn't, you weren't able to download it, but it's something that would be like, that's just not appropriate. But now it's really held up out there and it's like, not even looked at as anything. When you look at TikTok, um, you come, you have these musics and these dances that are viral and you don't necessarily listen to the words a lot of the time uh, in the TikTok, but a lot of the music, if you actually go and look up the lyrics and break down the words, sometimes it's about traffickers selling their girls and making them come back and give them the money. Uh, or another one, uh, No Face, No Case. I think it's almost been two years now since that was really viral on TikTok. Um, and what you would do in the TikTok dance is uh, it was No Face, No Case. And then it's a gun being charged, the sound. And then you would transition the video. And you would start off like not you know, being in your pajamas or whatever. And then No Face, No Case, it would change. And then you'd be all dressed up to go out or whatever, what it was. So it was like really visually pleasing. It was a cool transition, but no face, no case. It's, it's a gang term. It's a trafficking term. Uh, from the trafficking standpoint, they say it all the time because if you cover up the face of your victim in the illicit online ads, then therefore she can't be detected or the images when they're presented in court, they can argue, well, that's not her because her face was covered up, right? So they think of it as a defense against their criminality. And then here you go, you've got anywhere from 12-year-olds to 60-year-olds on TikTok that are just slamming this music over and over into the minds of whoever is listening to it. Um, I think it was at the beginning of the pandemic and it was really popular. There were even celebrities that I loved and followed and they started getting into it and they were doing TikToks um, to that music and to other music that I knew that was very much ingrained in the trafficking lifestyle. And I had to unfollow them. I couldn't do it. I was like, no, I can't. I can't do it. I'm tainted. I know what that means and I know what's being pushed out there and it just, it really bothers me sometimes. And I wish that parents, when they be listen to the music that their kids are listening to, um, not let them partake in the WAP challenge um, because you're really doing yourself a disservice and making your child more vulnerable and able to be exploited by people in sexual means, not just trafficking, but in any way of life. Well, I think you have a responsibility as well. And, I, and that's what I see, you know, with... With this hypersexualization, and again, it's not coming from a prudish element. It's like, you know, th there's a certain point where you have to encapsulate that genre and it becomes explicit. It becomes a separate, you know, 
um, arena. But for example, I've always loved hip hop, you know, and I love, I've always loved the intelligent, you know, the Tribe Called Quest and Common and all these people that are telling a story. Like, yeah, it sucked growing up where I grew up and we didn't trust the police, but it wasn't fuck the police. It wasn't kill the police. It wasn't bitches and hoes. It was just let me story tell, you know, life through my eyes. Um, but take, for example, NWA, you know, fuck the police. Well, what happens now? Ice Cube and Ice T both portray police officers and make millions of dollars pretending to be the very thing they were preaching about, you know, killing and all this stuff when they were, you know, Cop Killer was one of Ice T's songs, you know. So it's it's insane. You know, they're they're more than happy to do this to make money, but then there's a complete, you know, they are, they never own the message that they do. They use this to to make millions and millions, but then they go off and you know do the complete opposite. And you're not, you know, going back into your community and pouring money in and opening schools and addiction centers and mentorship programs. You're just doing it so you can sell a crap load of records and then, you know, fill a warehouse full of cars. So to me, you know, this, this music and, you know, the, the, the videos and all these things are a great opportunity to absolutely tell a, a harsh story about what it's like, but do it to then forge positivity. Whereas, you know, telling young, for example, black girls, hey, this is what you need to do to get ahead, you know, then that's, that's, a, you've got this platform and now you use that platform to not nurture your community, but destroy your community. So true. And especially within that community, if, and it's, it's terrible. And the statistics are actually out there. There is an FBI statistic that, um, the out of the minor sex trafficking victims in Los Angeles County, um, it's something like between 92-95% of them were black females that were the victims out of the minor victims. When you take statistics which are really hard to come by um, in the counter human trafficking, anti-trafficking space and start looking at them, but you take the demographics of what's happening and you look at it and you just lay it all out there and try to do the math with what you have, it looks like almost it's five times more likely for a black female to be trafficked than a white female in this country when you start looking at the numbers. And the numbers line up with what we see uh, when we're working with law enforcement. It's what law enforcement sees too. And it's, it's awful. And I wish that, you know, we could have a world where women could be like, body positive and everything like that and show themselves off. But unfortunately, we have to live in a world when we're doing that. We have to think about it a little bit because when we hypersexualize ourselves, we're also drawing in uh, men that are looking at it like that. And in a perfect world, men would not react and be like, that's an awesome, strong female. She does what she wants. But there's chemicals in his brain that we cannot control. Um, it's literally an evolutionary drive for them to be turned on when they're looking at images of women. And now when men go to stimulate themselves and whatnot, they don't even just, they don't even have to go look at pornography anymore. All they have to do is scroll through their Instagram feed. Like it's there. Like you have these models um, and these influencers and Instagram allows some content that is open to anybody who has an account really. And it's absolutely terrifying. And it also, you know, gives 
people who are looking at that content and instant gratification. Um, and that um, what, probably dopamine dump is what it would be of what they're looking at. And it messes up the reward centers in their brains. And it leads to them looking for something else. So if they're scrolling through Instagram and they're checking out models and it's not good enough for them and they start checking out pornography and then it's not good enough for them either. And on the pornographic websites, there's uh, ads for meet hot girls here. And then they click on that and then it leads them to the illicit ad websites that end up taking you out to where you can order a girl up like a pizza and you don't know if it's a trafficking victim or not. I mean, it's a slippery slope. Well, there's ownership from the men as well, because there's so many messages out there that, you know, you should be out, you know, excuse my language, but basically it's messages. You should be out fucking everything that you can. And, you know, the, the, the way that so many areas of porn have become, and again, not a prude, you know, I, I watch porn, of course. I'm, you know, I think a lot of us do, but there's, you know, porn that simulates what two healthy people in a relationship would do. And then there's this kind of like hate rape genre that seems to be huge. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's sickening to me that that's the message to our young men and women. Like, Hey, this is, this is socially acceptable. This is what, you know, you should allow them to, to do to you, you know, number of people in the same room, whatever it is. And then, you know, so when I look at that, I'm assuming then there's a big connection between, uh, you know, some of the, the less, um, famous, I guess you'd say, areas of porn and sex trafficking again. Yeah. It, you know, I can tell a quick story about, um, a trafficking survivor that I've had the privilege of speaking to and learning from. And she, told me that she had a video that she found of herself up on one of the major porn sites and it was made while she was being trafficked and it was posted by her trafficker and it had millions of views. And she was like, I have to get this down. And so she contacted the website and I'm talking one of the major, major websites. And she's like, please take this down, but you can't let him know. You can't let him know. Like she sent her ID, like everything so that they knew it was her in the video. She's like, this is up without my consent. She's like, but you can't let him know I'm the one that had you take it down because that then he will come try to find me again because he wasn't in jail, unfortunately. They let him know and he blew her up and she had to get a new phone and she had to, she had to move and she had to hide. And so it makes you wonder though, like if you're, you're looking at, you know, and, I, and I'm not a prude either. I get it. People have needs. But when you are looking at this video, especially the ones you're talking about, the really, really rough ones that seem to be like the only ones that are front facing these days, right? If you're going to search out any kind of pornography, you have to do some research if you want it to be like ethical, non like violent. <laughs> and um, you, it makes you wonder how many of these girls were either trafficking victims or when it was being filmed, were they being exploited by the producers? Because there have been cases where guys have lured girls in and filmed them and not paid them what they're supposed to do or made false promises and made them do acts within the videos that they wouldn't have wanted to do. Maybe they showed up and they thought this is what was going to happen. And then three guys come in and it turns into a group that's like taping and things. But then what like ends up happening is they're like, well, you'll never work in this industry again. You won't get your money if you don't record this video. 
And so that's a whole nother level of exploitation that um, even in the legitimate realms of pornography that these, these girls have to face. Um, and it, it's like, man, how do you fix that? What do you do with that? And there's no way that we're ever going to not have those videos out there that aren't bad because that sells and the number of clicks and the number of subscriptions. And unfortunately, uh, I mean, there's millions and millions of people who are always going to continue to watch. And so trying to reform ethically the pornography industry would, I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. <laughs> well, you can see again with me, it's the same as the addiction discussion that we had earlier. It's supply and demand. You take away the demand or you minimize the demand through, for example, removing the prohibition element of drugs and addressing the mental health crisis that's causing people to turn to drugs, then, you know, the demand that most of the people exploit goes away. And I, I'm just, I'd love to kind of hear from someone who can explain the mental health element of the addiction to porn, addiction to prostitution, especially this, you know, this aggressive side of, I mean, don't get me wrong, it if there's a consenting male or female that wants to, you know, use that as their trade, and there are people that for whatever circumstances can't seem to have a physical relationship, and it's done under safe circumstances, and it's legal, and it's testing and all that stuff, I, that's, you know, that's that's for that group. But I think there's so many people that turn to that, and mental health, you know, is definitely part of it, to fill that void, to get that, you know, that kind of dopamine response through orgasm which deregulates the nervous system for a second how can we apply that mental health model to fix the demand side of porn and prostitution as well i think we have a common theme here that we all need to uh, look towards mental health and put a lot of resources behind it i think just within a society and then also within ourselves right because um, that's where it starts you got to be mentally healthy if you want to be able to uh, make differences out there in the world Absolutely. And even the obesity epidemic, I'm sure that would make a huge dent in that too. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of some of that, you know, is definitely genetics and medical and chemical, but a large part of it um, definitely has to do with your mental health and your willingness to um, to follow through <laughs> Yeah, and put yourself in a comfortable situation. Absolutely. All right. Well, then I want to make sure that we spend a little bit of time on the first responder community and everyone else, I mean, anyone, anyone in the community, but especially police, fire, EMS. I mean, we get to see up front and center a lot of these, um, whether it's the, you know, the young men and women that are trafficked, whether it's the traffickers, when I mean, we're exposed to that entire theater. Um, but I know looking back on my career that I probably missed 99% of the warning signs. And when I look back now, like we talked about earlier, there are a couple of scenarios where I can clearly in my mind, see that there was you know two three women in a room and a man and like are they roommates no <laughs> you know there's clearly a different dynamic going on so what are some of the the warning signs or telltale kind of um, red flags that you teach to the first responder community through deliver fund uh, some of those i can definitely share some of them we keep to ourselves therefore vigilantes don't go out there and try to start busting down hotel room doors because that is not the way to solve things um, but some of the tall tell signs that you'll see like you said if there is a male and there's multiple females um 
if they are dressed like in lingerie, scantily clad within the room. So like if you show up to a call and they're not wearing much at all, uh, the rooms themselves will be kind of messy. Um, and, you know, you'll see stuff out of the like convenience um, where you go buy like stuff down in the lobby, right? Sorry, I can't think of the word right now. You're going to also, there's going to be condoms. Um, there's going to be uh, likely lubricant that is in the room. Um, they're not going to have like really nice luggage and different things carrying their stuff around. Sometimes you'll see the girls are carrying their things around in trash bags. Um, the, the trafficker might have multiple rooms for their girls. If not, the room is going to have two beds, one for sleeping in and one for performing the acts in. Um, the girls themselves, they're not going to want to make eye contact with you. Um, there's a really good possibility that they are trained that you are the enemy, even if you are a firefighter or a paramedic. They're not. You're you're still you're still part of the government machine that could take you away if you see there's something going wrong. Um, they might not be willing to come with you, um, even if they're injured or they're sick, um, because they know that they're not allowed to go with you. So sometimes there's multiple female victims, and it's something called a bottom. And if the female is allowed to come with you, she's the one who's going to be coming in. She's going to be the one who's speaking for her. Um, she's going to be the one that doesn't let her mess up if she's going to be taken away to be to be treated. They might not have identification on them um, or they might not have control of their identification. So if you ask for the ID of the girl and the trafficker is the one that pulls it out, that might be a red flag. <laughs> Um, so they don't have control over their documents. Um, you know, if you ask them questions like what they're doing in town or what they're doing for work, uh, those can be some some hard red flags. Like, um, oh, I'm visiting my friend or whatever it is. Okay, well, what do you do for work? Where's home? And they can't tell you. That's, that's something that might be, hey, you know, let's let's go ahead and get a human trafficking detective here to see what's going on to ask some of the more hard-hitting questions and um, bruising bruising is one um, rapid weight loss uh, a lot of times traffickers control their victims by what they get to eat and so rapid weight loss you can see it their eyes may be sunken stretch marks um, are a big one and so you might see that they have you know stretch marks they've dropped a lot of weight in the short amount of time and you might be seeing you know, they're irritable, they're vulnerable, um, they might be quiet at first, but then they might just go full-fledged angry on you and crazy <laughs> um, because that's going to be their reaction to protect themselves. It's fight or flight, right? We all we all face it. And when they're in that position and they're scared for their lives, they're scared for um, maybe being blackmailed, uh, whatever it may be, they're, they're going to put up a fight. Um or they're going to try to run. <laughs> so those are some of the signs that I mean, I can go on for the next two hours of what you might see when you come across a victim. But, um, you know, their mental health status is not going to be stable. They won't have control of their documents, like I said, look for bruising, um, drug use, um, how they're interacting with the people around them. And if you're a first responder, it's very important to always separate your your suspected victim from their trafficker to ask the question.
kind of thing, deliver fund for law enforcement. And I do believe we're putting together a course for first responders, for like paramedics and firefighters here soon. Um, we provide a course if you go to deliverfund.law and every like month or two, we actually teach the law enforcement basic human trafficking identifier course, which is really good. And we hopefully will be getting that first responder course up and running in the new year, which I know would be uh, extremely valuable to first responders everywhere. So if you want to learn more from that, you can, you can go check that out. Beautiful. Well, please let me know and I'll, I'll share the, the links for that as well. When, when I think about that one case, Real quick backstory. So she was completely unconscious. I got called in. I think there was a couple of other girls. And then I do remember a guy in there. There was drug paraphernalia all over the room. She was, you know, painfully thin. It was a, a very unique medical case. She had basically an opioid overdose, but she had, um, uh, hyperglycemia. So her blood sugar was so high. She had what's called Kussmaul's, which is where they breathe really, really fast. So medically, I think her high blood sugar had kept her alive. It had made her breathe when that breath response had been diminished. So I gave her Narcan and everything. Then she, she basically vomited, defecated, urinated all in my, in my, my ambulance at the time till we got to the hospital. But yeah, she was very angry. She was very combative. Um, and I almost got the feeling in that sense though, that the male was like, he just wanted to be shot of her. Just wanted, to, so he didn't even try and come along. But I mean, now when you gave me that list, I mean, I can check probably six or seven boxes that you just told me about. So had I had that knowledge now, I probably would have pulled the law enforcement aside and said, Hey, this is what I saw in this place. And then hopefully they would have the same kind of background to then follow through. Something that's really important um, in this case, actually, that people need to know, especially in the first responder community, is that when traffickers are done with their victims, like she's too much work, she's costing them too much money, she's being too combative, um, or she's not responsive anymore in any way, they give them a hot shot, they kill them, they, they intentionally overdose them, because then it's an intentional overdose, and they don't it doesn't look like it was the traffickers fault and they leave them in a ditch, whatever it may be. And it's, it's absolutely terrifying. That might've been, might've been what he was trying to do was to, to get rid of her. Um, and the, you know, they do this and we see this and then you start thinking your, your wheels start turning. How many overdoses have you come across of young girls, you know, in hotels or, in ditches or whatever it may be. And, you know, when you come upon one of those scenes, what did the law enforcement agency do? They, they rule it, you know, an overdose or a suicide or what it may be. And she might've been a runaway that was ran away months, years ago, but she was likely being trafficked. And that's what was truly happening. And her drug addiction is what her trafficker was using to keep her, her in check. And so like speaking back to statistics, that's where we're like, so how, how many trafficking victims out there have been hotshotted by their trafficker and left for dead? And we never even knew that they were being trafficked in the first place. Well, that reminds me of another call we had. And, and it was, it was so sad because we ran this call and then went back to normal. And then it kind of hit me like, wow, that's how desensitized we are that that didn't even shake us at all. But it was a young, you know, young girl who I believe was a prostitute and the area next to mine was a huge red light district in Orlando and she was dead in a dumpster. So someone had literally 
just dis- discarded her. So obviously, whatever use she had for that individual had had come to an end, and they literally disposed of that young woman. And it was fucking heartbreaking. But that that's an obvious, you know, murder. But like you said, we have these ODs all the time, and you know, to think that some of these would be actually murder from another person totally shifts the lens. And you know, traffickers when they do that. So say if. You know, this is a hypothetical. Say she was a trafficking victim. Say she got overdosed and she got thrown into a dumpster. They do it on purpose because the other girls that they're trafficking, they'll be like, you're dead and you're in a dumpster. And that's where you're going to be if you don't bring me the money that you owe me or that you are required to make for your quota this day. And so they use them as examples as well. So like, okay, well, I had to get rid of this one to get these four to act accordingly. It's a business decision in their mind because with traffickers, it's all about money. They have no regard for human life. They have zero empathy with what they're doing. It's all about the cash that it brings in to fulfill whatever lifestyle they're trying to emulate or uphold. <coughs> cough, cough. Um, kind of whole culture. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's rough to see and watch. And once you do see it, and, and if you're listening to this and you're out there on calls and you start seeing it, um, take notes, take down information and make sure that you provide it to whatever detective that's taking it. Yeah, well, I mean, I truly appreciate your perspective. I, mean, I think it was Nick when we did the interview a few years ago. I mean, it literally blew my mind and that's not an understatement of all the things I've missed. And that was probably right when I transitioned out of the fire service. But right before I did, I was in a very affluent area where I don't recall any situations like that. I was away from, you know, the, the, the poor urban areas I spent all my career in before. But it's so important that we hear this and it is, it's just never discussed. I was never trained on this. It was never discussed in fire school, medic school, EMT school. Um, so, you know, what you're doing with the Deliver Fund and you and, and the team there, uh, is not only invaluable, obviously, for the, the traffic themselves, but it's, it's educating us and increasing those eyeballs, that manpower and woman power, um, you know, globally so that we can be more aware and therefore making it harder for the people that are preying on our young men and women. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Cara, I want to. I just want to make sure that everyone knows where they can find Deliver Fund, and then also where they can find you on Instagram, because that in itself is a, a, a vault of information. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Deliver Fund, we're a nonprofit, and you can find us at deliverfund.org. You can find us across all the social media platforms out there: um, LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, at Deliver Fund. Um, you can find me specifically on Instagram um, uh, at Kara underscore the underscore Huntress. So Kara the Huntress. Um, and I routinely share a lot of information uh, and, you know, advice and, you know, warning signs. And of course, I call out human traffickers and share their social media as well for education purposes on my Instagram, um, which is all archived if you want to watch it. Um, Hunting with the Huntress for the Liver Fund's YouTube channel. Everything that I've ever shared is there. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's eye-opening. But um, please come, uh, come check us out. 
Beautiful. Well, again, thank you so much. I think totally now we've, we've done well over two hours of conversation. Um, and you know, so many areas of your story are so pertinent, but obviously now what you're doing with, with Deliver Fund and, you know, the, the, the pandemic, for example, got so much exposure, so much, you know, money thrown at it. Yet uh, something I've been saying the whole time, obesity, you know, the, the opioid epidemic, you know, human trafficking, all these areas aside from a virus are stealing young men and women's lives and innocence daily. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and telling your story. Thank you so much for shining a light on such a dark subject. I appreciate you having me on.